Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 105th show today. Today's guest is Jeff John Roberts, author of Kings of Crypto. I really enjoyed this book. I've been uh, bringing people on for the last two years to talk about uh, crypto and get a better understanding of it. And each time I learn it a little bit more, as I think everybody in the audience does as well. So, Jeff, let's start with talk, talk about your professional background. Um, well, thanks. First off, thanks, Mark, so much for having me on and, you know, let me share the story of the book with your listeners. Um, my background is um, I'm a recovering lawyer who went into journalism and tech journalism in my 30s. And in the course of that, I discovered uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which I began reporting on in 2013 while covering tech more broadly. But as crypto got, kept getting bigger and bigger, it sort of became a core part of what I reported until I sort of went all in on it. And um, today, that's what I do. I'm the executive editor of a leading crypto website called Decrypt. And, uh, you know, I cover finance and law and crypto and how it touches the rest of the world, including the economy, politics, culture. Um, and I suppose that's what I do. And so why did you write this book? Uh, there's other good crypto books out there, but a lot of them are very kind of insidery. You know, they're sort of, uh, you know, because crypto is very tribal and it's it's they're sort of written from the inside. And there's some very good ones, but a lot of um, there. No one had written a, a story yet that told crypto in plain English, you know, in the story of how it works. Um, and what I, I decided to use Coinbase, which is the biggest crypto company, as a vehicle to tell that story in the same way there's other you know, good books like uh, if you care about the sneaker industry, there's a book called Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founding, founder of Nike. And, you know, in reading about the story of Nike, you learn about, you know, the shoe industry more broadly. And I want to do the same sort of thing with crypto, picking a kind of, you know, quintessential company in there. And its story tells both it's a fascinating, you know, story of a startup that became a, you know, multi-billion dollar company, but also tells the story of, of a new industry. So that's why I chose Coinbase. We're, we're all familiar with reading about cryptocurrency, but what exactly is it and why is it needed? And do you think it's a permanent fixture in the financial world? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, core theory of my book is that, you know, other, you know, digital disruption, Silicon Valley has disrupted a lot of other industries, publishing and music and entertainment. And finally, it came for finance, you know, the same sort of like tech approach, Silicon Valley approach has come to Wall Street. And, you know, I think the proof in, is in the pudding in that a lot of people are leaving their Wall Street jobs and conventional banking jobs to move into crypto. And, you know, since I started covering it in 2013, people said this is a fad, it's a scam, it's going to go away. But after a certain point, I think you have to say, hey, this is 
big enough that it's a permanent part of our, you know, economic and business landscape. Um, and I'm, you know, I try not to, you know, shill for crypto, say, hey, you should get into it, or I don't call it a scam either. You know, there's good and bad like there is with any other industry, but I think we're safely past the point of, you know, saying, oh, will it still be here? You know, it's, I think it's, 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 it is here and it will be here for a long time. Yeah, I remember Jamie Dimon, and you talk about this in your book, uh, didn't hold a lot and give it a lot of weight, but now his people are. Um, there are over 18,000 cryptocurrencies, according to Investopedia. How easy is it to create one, and are they regulated, and how many survivors do you think there will be? Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, there was Bitcoin and a few others, and now there's thousands of them, and most of them are garbage, and most of them, because, you know, I think the most important thing to understand about what is crypto, it's software. It's a piece of software that lets you create digital tokens and distribute them. You know, you or I could, you know, do it as a lark, create like Catcoin or Dogcoin or whatever your interest is. Um and you know there you can have it if and it's if there's people dumb enough to buy it well guess what you now have a cryptocurrency empire uh but a lot you know so that's that's most of them unfortunately but there are some that are dedicated to kind of you know solving a problem and harnessing the power of blockchain and web3 technology which we can get into later that are i think very much legitimate so you know but, you know, don't go out there and buy the first cryptocurrency you see. Uh, but, you know, if you do your homework, you realize some of these are very legit products. And, you know, but the reality is, yeah, most of them are just kind of, uh, you know, spun up as a get rich quick hustle. And, and, and you know, there's 18,000 of these things right now. How many survivors? Will this be like other industries where you start with a bunch of them and there's three to five um, major players or in some cases just one player like Facebook is in the social media space? That's a good question. Yeah, we might remember the early internet era where there was, you know, multiple search engines or, you know, or, or, you know, I think a dozen search engines. In the end, we just got Google and one or two others. In the case of crypto, um, uh, you know, there's going to be Bitcoin. You know, what we say to crypt is Bitcoin and Ethereum, the second biggest one, will definitely be here in five or 10 years. The other ones, who knows? Um, I think long term, there's going to be room for maybe, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 of them. The other ones will kind of linger on like zombies and people try to trade their coins. But as terms of a sort of a, you know, a flourishing day-to-day, -day, you know, ecosystem, I think, yeah, probably more like five or 10 is realistic. Uh, you mentioned the book that most startups are at least a two-man teams. Why is that? Is that better uh, than a sole founder as you have been studying entrepreneurship? Yeah, as um, you know, it's, it's I've covered Silicon Valley for a long time, the tech industry before the crypto industry. And, you know, these people who start these startups work like maniacs, they, you know, to, to make it. They you know, often work 16 hours a day. And I think it's psychologically very hard, too, because, you know, you're putting your reputation, you're often putting, you know, your personal fortune on the line. And if it doesn't work, I think it's a very terrifying thing. And that process, I think, is, you know, Exhausting. So I think having a, a, a co-founder means you can spread the work around, but equally important is having the sort of psychological support of going through the very intense process of being a startup um, and, you know, trying to make it because reality is most startups fail. So I, I just think it's easier to survive this whole process if you have someone to do it with. Yeah, I've done 25 startups and when I've had partners, it could be bad or good, but in most cases, it's really nice to have somebody to talk to about these things. Um, an, a question from the audience, which one is your favorite of these uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and how do you feel about mining Arethium with hardware like Bobcat Miner? 
Um, there's a couple of questions here. I mean, in terms of my favorite, uh, I'm a journalist first and foremost, so I you know try not to have a favorite, and I own a very small amount of crypto only so I can use it and figure out how it works. So what I say is not remotely investment advice. I mean, Bitcoin's probably my favorite because it's the first one and the most established and has the most interesting stories associated with it. But of the newer projects, you know, Ethereum has, has you know, changed the world of computing and changed a lot of things. You know, I like Ethereum and there's some newer projects too, like, you know, Solana or Avalanche that are still sort of emerging and are coming to their own. There's a neat currency called Tezos that's quite original. And then you have like the meme coins like Dogecoin and Shiba Inu coin, which are spun up as jokes and then take on life of their own. So I think those are, you know, I don't want to say I have a favorite, but those are all interesting ones. Um, and as for mining, that's, uh, you know, I think you hear about cryptocurrency mining. And once upon a time, you could mine Bitcoin on your home laptop. Now you need specialized computer equipment. Um, Ethereum, you can mine, but you need special graphic cards. You know, it's become sort of big business. And so it's, it's not really viable for a lot of people to mine Ethereum or Bitcoin unless you really want to invest a lot of capital into the process. Well, what does that mean, mining? Like when I think of mining, I think of drilling into a mountain and pulling out something like coal or gold or silver, whatever. But explain to us what mining actually means here. Yeah, well, in this case, what you're mining for are coins and you're sort of drilling into software. I don't know, it's kind of a crude analogy, but um, to step back for a sec, you know, I think most of your listeners are familiar with blockchains, which are these permanent records. You know, all of all Bitcoin is, is a computer program. Same with Ethereum, same with the other ones. But they have this thing where multiple computers are kind of connected together, maintaining a network and agreeing. This is, you know, an irre irrefutable list of, of transactions. You, you know, it's, it's permanent. It's sketched. Everyone can see it. So why do people go to the trouble of maintaining these records in the first place? You have to devote your computer power to it. You have to run a program. You know, they're not doing it out of the good of their heart. They're doing it because if you are maintaining these blockchains, in the case of Bitcoin, every 10 minutes, a new block of transactions goes on there. But the person who adds that block is the miner. And the miner uh, you know, does that because they've won a sort of a, a contest to solve a math problem first. And in solving that math problem, they're rewarded with currently six Bitcoin. It used to be 500. But so as you're sort of being paid to maintain the network and your pay is, you know, is an allotment of coins by adding a new block. Of course, those coins are worth money. You can go sell elsewhere. So that's mining. You know, and it's these networks are set up that anyone can do it. You want to go be an Ethereum or Bitcoin miner tomorrow? Do it. You can download the Bitcoin software and run your computer to try to join this race to add a new block by solving a math problem first. The problem is you're probably not going to have the computer program power to do it. So your, your chances of being the one to find the block are really, really slim unless you kind of join a pool and, you know, pool your resources. That's how it typically works now with Bitcoin and Ethereum. There's these massive pools that are kind of a conglomerate together and you sort of share the spoils if someone in your pool finds a block. You, you even mentioned your book, and I watch Billions and Bobby Axelrod, the main character up until this season, his son uh, turned essentially killed the electric grid by mining for, I guess, Bitcoin, where he took over all the computer power and electricity in a city to go and do that. This stuff requires to to do it in a significant way, right? A lot of computer power, electricity. Yeah, I mean, once upon a time, you can mine Bitcoin on your phone or your laptop. Now you need, they're called, you know, sort of specialized ASIC chips, you know, not to go into the details of computers, but, you know, most of us, there's sort of, you know, general 
you know, chips that do all sorts of things. But for specific applications like gaming or like cryptocurrency mining these days, there's chips made just for that. They're optimized to do to do that. And so, you know, if you have these chips, your chances of you know solving the computer math problem that Bitcoin requires, you have a lot better chance with those. And these are actually kind of big machines. You know, the real opera, you know, some of these entities are like a big server farm. There'll be a whole warehouse full of machines just grinding to mine Bitcoin. And yeah, that's very energy intensive. And that's why Bitcoin's sort of controversial. Depends what you're plugged into. If your Bitcoin mine is plugged into like, you know, a hydroelectric dam, that's probably fine. But when you're sort of, you know, burning coal to mine Bitcoin, environmentalists, I think correctly have a, an objection to that. Yeah, I can, I can imagine that they're gonna have an objection. Another question from the audience, how can crypto benefit a startup? Um, well, I mean, if you're a crypto startup, obviously that's what you want to be in, you know, and some crypto, some startups, you know, pay their, their employees in crypto, especially if you have an international workforce, you know, crypto is very easy to move around. It's borderless money. You know, I think most of your listeners have probably done a bank transfer and having to wait like three days, wire transfers is expensive. It's inconvenient. Crypto is a lot faster, you know, so I think it's a superior technology for payments, um, and, you know, there's other blockchain applications to, you know, to experiment with, you know, a lot of people dabble in crypto because it's the hot thing and it sounds cool you're involved. But, yeah, I think it's worth asking, like, how is this actually going to help you? And if you're a pure Bitcoin business or pure crypto business, obviously you're in it. But, you know, for like if you're, a, you know, a business selling vacuums, I don't think you need crypto right now. I, I don't get this and I just don't can't even believe it. But. They say these keys are unhackable. Is really anything unhackable? Because you're talking about, you know, genius people trying to figure out how they can, you know, the kind of robbers they have today are, you know, are super, super smart Einstein types. Is really anything unhackable? Well, I mean, you know, the, the same algorithm that secures Bitcoin is used by banks and airlines to kind of protect passwords. And it's a matter of, you know, trying to guess something that's like a one in a trillion guess. So, you know, that's, I think, makes, you know, hacking someone's you know wallet and guessing their private key almost impossible. The game changer, uh, people say, is going to be quantum computing. You know, when that comes online, that basically introduces a level of like computing firepower never seen before. And that means a quantum computer deployed all its power to to guessing or hacking a Bitcoin wallet. That probably would work. But, you know, this is about my pay grade. But I think quantum computing is still a few years in the future when that comes online for real. Uh, we'll probably know because someone's going to probably start, you know, hacking and mining other people's Bitcoin. But, uh, you know, but for but for now, I think it's Bitcoin has never been hacked. The companies that serve it have been, but, you know, the Bitcoin algorithm has never been compromised. Interesting. Uh, I thought this was an interesting statistic that 80% of Y Combinator companies end up going out of business. First, could you explain to our listeners from around the world, what is Y Combinator? And for all the vetting, mentorship, support, and, and door opening contacts, uh, you have an incredibly high failure rate. Uh, there. Why is that? So if you could start off by explaining what is Y Combinator and then uh, the second question. Yeah, if you've heard of like famous startups or one-time startups like Uber or DoorDash, a lot of them went through this. It's basically like a boot camp for entrepreneurs. Lasts about eight weeks and it's in um, Mountain View, California, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And, you know, they're very selective. They admit, I think, twice a year, maybe, you know, 
20 or 50 startups to go in there and go through their program. Um, and it's, you know, sort of like, you know, an elite vocational school for tech entrepreneurs. Um, in return, you know, what you get is you get a little bit of money, you get mentorship guidance, um, but what you have to give up is usually 8% of your equity that you hand over a stake in your company to get to go through this, this, this process and sort of be kind of battle tested through Y Combinator, and then you graduate. But the reality is, I mean, it's just startups are hard. Most of them fail. Um, and these are supposed to be the best of the best, but you know, the, the reality is just business is hard, you know, and that's, you know, there's entrepreneurs out there who have a lot of respect for who, you know, they try it and they fail. And, you know, I would find that a devastating experience, but they're very good at picking themselves off and doing it again. So a lot of, you know, successful entrepreneurs in tech and Silicon Valley, they usually, you know, the first two or three startups usually failed until they hit on the right one. Oh, I know a lot, a lot about failure. I've had a lot of those. Uh, if my bank does not take, as a question from the audience, if my bank does not take cryptocurrency, how do I deposit without? Uh, how do I deposit, withdraw, and pay using cryptocurrency? Does the value change by the hour, by the day, etc.? Yeah, that's a risk. I mean, if you want to get yourself some cryptocurrency, you know, first, this is, this is probably obvious to a lot of you, but you hear a Bitcoin costs like $50,000, whatever it is today. That's true. But you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You can buy one sixteenth of a Bitcoin. You know, you could go out there and spend $20. And now you have some Bitcoin. Um, but to pay it, you know, you need to to use it. You need a wallet. Um, a digital wallet. It's a bit like online banking, but, and you can either get your own and, you know, manage your public and private key that's more secure, it's more private, but it's more risky. Or you can rely on a service like Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken or FTX to do it for you. And then in that case, it's very much like online banking. You have a wallet and, you know, you just simply send crypto to someone else's wallet. They make it very easy to do. But yeah, you, you can't send it directly to their like Bank of America account. Um, but in terms of the other part of that question is the volatility. Yeah, that's why Bit why crypto is not especially practical. You might buy Bitcoin and it's fifty thousand dollars. Oh, next week it might be forty thousand dollars. You know, so that's it's risky. You know, transacting in a in a currency that's volatile like that. What a lot of people do is something called stable coins. They're pegged to one, you know, to be one U.S. dollar. So you know, one stable coin. There's different types of them, like USDC or Tether. You get one, and that's basically a synthetic dollar that moves around the same way as crypto, but without the volatility. Another question from the audience: Can you give an example of a startup with a product that issues their own crypto coin as part of their funding? Yeah, there's a wave of. Um, you know, a few years ago, there's something called ICOs, initial coin offerings, and they would say, hey, we're going to build this product to do X, a superior like cloud computing system or a word processing system or a prediction market. And if you, you know, and as part of these launch, they would issue these tokens and you'd buy them up front. And that meant when the, you know, the thing was built, you would have these tokens you could use, but also as a form of speculation. So people, you know, bought and sold these you know, these coins as a form of fundraising. And that sort of changed the nature of the way, you know, companies raise money. In the past, you'd have your startup, you'd get a seed round, you'd go out and kill yourself and hope people would believe in you enough to invest you in another thing. This kind of flips it on its head. It's like, hey, I'm going to build this thing in the future. Here's a million tokens, you know, everyone buy them, please. And then I would, you know, be rich. And it's almost a problem because, you know, these people aren't as motivated. If you raise, you know, $200 million without having built anything, you know, it's, it's maybe harder to get out of bed and bust your ass like you did in the past. Um, but in terms of like, you know, as a form of fundraising tokens and issuing crypto can be very effective. However, there's, 
it's it's legally dangerous, you know, because the SEC will say, hey, you're selling unlicensed securities, so be careful out there. So there's ways to do it. You can target the international market or only wealthy investors, but you can use tokens, uh, which are increasingly becoming useful as the, the sort of the wallets and the infrastructure to support crypto develops, be it video games, be it music and NFTs. This is kind of a new frontier of an economy that revolves around crypto. So if you're starting a, you know, a new company, you might, you know, consider issuing a token, but, you know, you still need a good business idea. You still need to work. You need to do the rest of it. You know, you know, there are people who's, you know, unfortunately, most of them in crypto, it's like fly by night thing. Hey, buy my token. Here's a bunch of promises. You know, maybe you'll get rich one day, but, um, you know, that's not, I think, how, you know, you know, how I think of doing business, but, you know, for some people it is. Another question from the audience. Some governments have launched a pilot crypto programs. Will this have an effect on other players in the market? Uh, great minds think alike. I had that as one of my questions. Um, yeah, I mean, every government, you know, is experimenting with crypto just because the current financial system is sort of a legacy system, the you know, kind of computer arrangements by which we move money back and forth in and out of the Federal Reserve is kind of, you know, it's it's from the analog era. Um, so because of this, you know, governments are looking at building sort of central bank currencies, replacing, you know, the, the dollar with, you know, a crypto dollar. Um, that's probably not going to happen in the U.S. It's definitely not going to happen in the U.S. for two reasons. It's because there's privacy implications. Like China has its digital yuan. And as we know, China is all about a surveillance state and tracking everything that their citizens do. And if this, the government is running the money, you know, and they knew every dollar you spent and could track it, you know, I think Americans, you know, they, they simply would, would not find that appealing. And likewise, the banks in America are very powerful. You know, J.P. Morgan does not want, you know, this new digital money displacing him. Because if you had a crypto dollar, why do you need to put your, your money in his bank? So for that reason, I think we're not going to see a uh, like a full-blown government cryptocurrency. What we're more likely to see is the government encouraging banks to start using stable coins just because it's a lot more efficient way to move money. And it's got big implications for the stock market, too. This is kind of in the weeds, but, you know, settling and clearing stock trades on a blockchain. This is they're experimenting with this already. And it makes a lot more sense to do it that way, because the reason we have these meltdowns with Robinhood and like the meme stock friends you might remember for from a year ago. Yes. It's because there simply isn't the infrastructure on Wall Street to to process that volume of transactions. If you use a blockchain, it's no problem. But using this legacy system and clearinghouse, it just can't keep up with the trading these days. I, I gotta believe that um, they these banks would be still fine because without the banks, how do we go get a mortgage uh, or borrow for our companies or any of the reasons that? you typically would use a bank for beyond just them holding the money. And somebody's got to give you a rate of return uh, on that money as well, whether, regardless if it's a half a percent or it's a greater number. So I, I wonder how that's going to uh, work out. Here's a question from the audience. How would you personally feel if your compensation for your journalism is made to you in crypto instead of dollars? Well, I mean, if I'd done that 10 years ago, I'd be very rich. Um, you know, if you look at the price of Bitcoin, it's, you know, it, uh, when I first reported on it, it cost $70 to buy Bitcoin. And now, you know, it, what it is. But, you know, um, journalists are sort of fairly risk averse people, believe it or not. And, you know, I would be reluctant to go all in on crypto just because it's so volatile. You know, I mean, I, I believe Bitcoin and Ethereum will remain. However, you know, is it possible Bitcoin could crash to $10,000? Yes. Could it go to $100,000? Yes. But, you know, for just day-to-day -day purposes, I would probably be a little uneasy in going all in on crypto. 
But in the same way, you know, there's, you know, it's, I think if you, you know, the theory of investing is diversification is good. If you look at what's in your 401k, your retirement plan, the advice is, you know, buy some stocks, buy some bonds, buy some overseas stuff. And that's how I see crypto. It's an asset that should be part of your larger wealth, but it would be foolish to go all in, you know, just like putting all your money in gold or all your money in Florida real estate, probably not a good idea, even though, you know, you might get, get lucky and, you know, get very rich from doing that over the next year. Yeah, Tim Draper told me years ago when it was like $200 a coin, Mark, you got to buy some of these coins. And I'm like, God, it's already $200 a coin. He said, yeah, but it's going to go to $20,000 a coin. Who would have guessed it would have gone as high as $60,000 a coin? So again, it's unpredictable. How many different places is one's Bitcoin total located? Is it one place that if the computer gets destroyed, is my money gone or is it housed on hundreds of computers? How does that work? Well, the blockchain, you know, provides a record of every Bitcoin and who owns it. And they create kind of like an address, you know, or just a bit of you know computer code that will identify the person who owns this key or this wallet has this Bitcoin. Um, you know, so if I blow up your laptop, then, you know, well, it's 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 still out there. If you've lost a private key, however, you're you're in trouble. That's why most people rely on custodians like Coinbase to do that hard work for them. But, you know, you hear these stories. And this is one guy in England who comes into the news like every year he had his Bitcoin on a hard drive and then like it went to a landfill and he wants to, yeah. you know, this guy just likes being in the news. The story just kind of keeps coming back. You can store your Bitcoin that way. You can, you know, if you want to do it yourself and not rely on Coinbase, you can have your own software wallet, but it's up to you to remember that private key, which is this, you know, scramble of like 64 letters you can never remember in your head. Um, or you could use a hardware wallet and that Bitcoin would be stored in a hardcore wallet. It's like a USB key or it could be a laptop. And that means you can only access it when that device is connected to the Internet. But that's up to you to both remember the key and not lose the device. If you lose it, that Bitcoin is gone. I, that's why I use Coinbase, because I'm afraid like that guy who has, what, three shots left. He has like seventy five million dollars sitting in his wallet, but he can't remember uh, the code. And of course, I would have put that code in like 10 different places mm -hmm. for fear of something like that. Uh, you wrote about a pretty significant amounts of fraud happened on Coinbase. Where did the money go and does that still happen today? And what stops thieves now from stealing? Um, I mean, you know, if you're getting it hacked, you're getting it hacked. I mean, you know, your bank account can get hacked if someone tricks you into handing over the password. So today, that's what most of the hacks consist of. Um, in terms of like people getting into Coinbase and robbing Coinbase of the uh, of the funds you have there, the chances that are very, very low. They got Coinbase got hacked once in their first year. Um, and quarter million dollars got stolen. But now, I mean, their security operations are so sophisticated that a hacker maybe would get in, but I don't think they'd get, you know, they wouldn't get the mother load as used to happen in the early days of Bitcoin. You know, the first, there's this famous exchange called Mt. Gox. That was the biggest Bitcoin trading platform and a hacker got into it and basically drained it all, almost killed Bitcoin. But you know, that was more like eight years ago, and the chances of that happening now are, are are very, very unlikely, especially as, you know, the security is better. A lot more companies are using it, um, you know, so the, the wilder, you can still get scammed, but when you hear about people getting losing their Bitcoin now, it's usually because they got tricked into handing over their private key or, you know, handing over information that let people get into their Coinbase account. You could, you know, you could spearfish me and pretend to be my bank and trick me into giving up my password, and then you'd be in my bank account. It's not really that much different from, from Coinbase or those other exchanges. 
how do companies like Coinbase attract the smartest and most talented people? And how can other startups do it? Because when you read about the backgrounds of these people in your book, these people are, you know, they're the people putting people on the moon or beyond. Yeah, that's what I find the, you know, very um, interesting about crypto. And I, I think a signal it's going to be here to stay. The best minds in tech and engineering and economics are all going into crypto. Um, you know, they're one of the founders of, uh, you know, Coinbase. Well, Brian Armstrong is the founder. Um, you know, he electrical engineering degree, computer science guy, Airbnb background, but his co-founder, probably more impressive, um, guy named Fred Ursum, who is at Goldman Sachs, but also a very good computer programmer. And he left Goldman Sachs because he was frustrated because they were too slow on the technology front. You know, so people like that who really have that entrepreneurial thirst and want to sort of work for themselves and build a company are all going into crypto. I mean, not every last one of them, but, you know, eight years ago, I've, some of the people in my book would say trying to you know bring introduce Bitcoin to discussion at Harvard Business School. And the professor would be like, no, that's a fad. Go away. Now, all of these schools have classes in blockchain. So. You know, everyone coming through college right now, you know, it's a very good chance, you know, they will leave having taken a class in blockchain, which just reflects how, you know, deeply it's become part of, you know, the, uh, you know, as a career path and the future of finance and economics and business. Uh, question from the audience. In the future, do you think banks will be the crypto intermediaries or do you think banks and crypto service providers will remain separate entities? And does Biden's executive order change your answer on crypto's trajectory? Um, that's a that's a smart question. Yeah, I think that's it's it's TBD. You know, the banks have a lot more juice in Washington and are heavily have their hands heavily on the Biden administration's crypto policy. Um, and in the case of the Biden administration, he's taking a lot of his cues from Elizabeth Warren and the progressive. Uh, left who seem to hate crypto because they seem to view it as a scam or through you know the prism of uh, of com consumer protection. Um, a lot of people in crypto find this very patronizing, saying you know, hey, crypto offers an opportunity for me to invest, make money, get a better return. And the banks, what are their you know their high yield savings accounts are are paying 0.5 percent, you know, at a time of seven percent inflation. So you know, I think a lot of people are like you know stop protecting me from crypto. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a point there. But as for the executive order, I mean, I think you know it's it's always a big deal. You know, can you imagine the president ten years ago, the president of the United States making an announcement about crypto and Bitcoin? He didn't even know what it was. And today, it's executive order. But that's I think more. You know, all he did was tell his his agencies to come up with a more kind of coherent policies. So you know, the Treasury Department, the SEC, and so on to just kind of keep figuring out what to do with crypto because it's gotten so big that the U.S. government understandably does not want this parallel financial system that, you know, to eclipse the U.S. dollar. And it's far from there yet, but, you know, increasingly it is. Um, so I think that the Biden administration is trying to figure out how to get its arms around crypto. And it's just using a lot of these agencies to try to, uh, the encouraging thing in the order was they recognize it's an innovation and they want some of that to stay in America. This is what happened with the, with the internet, like, you know, 25, 30 years ago. A lot of people, you know, condemn the internet because it was for it was for porn, it was for crime, it was for fraud, and you know, a lot of the initial reaction was like, and plagiarism was to like, how do we stop the internet? And the U.S. I think was very prescient in passing a pair of laws that allowed the internet to flourish in the U.S. Um, while reigning in some of the bad elements. But because of that we had Silicon Valley in the U.S. Um, and I think you know, 
it's a mixed bag of Facebook's good and bad, you know, <laughs> but there's no getting rid of it. We're not putting the internet back in the bottle and the same thing for crypto. And hopefully Biden's order will let the U.S. reap the best of crypto while kind of, you know, driving some of the worst elements away. Uh, you're at a crypto conference now, right? I am. Yeah, I'm in Jackson Hole, Wyoming with a bunch of Ethereum people. And did it just start? No, there's in the series of these crypto conferences. I mean, what happened is a lot of the early crypto people got very rich. You bought Bitcoin or Ethereum, you know, and six years ago, you, you know, and you bought a lot of it. There's chances are you're a millionaire or possibly a billionaire. Um, so these people have a lot of influence. They want to start other companies and they love crypto because it made them rich. So, you know, they, and they're increasingly becoming a force in politics and elsewhere, um, for better or worse. A lot of these people have a staggering amount of money. So, Is there anything you've learned at this conference that would be good for us to know? <laughs> um, well, uh, rich crypto people like to spend their money in interesting ways. But um, no, I mean, there's also been some sort of stand-up discussion about, you know, the future of it, how to make it more usable. Because the amount of innovation in Web3 is just staggering. There's so much money going into it. You know, Web3 being this idea of the metaverse and doing everything on a blockchain and through NFTs. But for your average person, you go to go try it. You're like, this is a terrible user experience. There's a video game called Axie Infinity. You go to play it and it's actually no fun. And it seems like, you know, it's primarily designed to get you to put more money into it. But you know, we're at this phase now, and that's like the early internet was like this too. The early internet was not very easy to use until there was like a web browser. You know, some of you listeners might be old enough to remember AOL. You know, that was the internet. You would get a CD and they would be like, here's, you know, a hundred websites you can go to. And that was the internet. And it you know, relied on AOL to guide your way. You know, and then, you know, it just sort of became, and then there started becoming killer applications like, you know, email, watching videos. And the Web3 world is sort of building this slowly, but we're still a year or two away for it, from it being appealing to ordinary people. Uh, there was an incredible failure with uh, Mt. Gox, and I think everybody remembers reading about that, which held over 150 million cryptocurrency. W what did they learn from that failure? You know, Why did it fail, and what did we learn from that? Well, I mean, Mt. Gox, I think, was, what was it, like 2014 or 2015? Um, you know, everyone put their money there. It was, it was based in Japan, um, and that's where the world went. People would send wire orders of cash and in return would get, you know, a credit to their Bitcoin account. Um, and that was the biggest game in town. But, they, you know, the guy running it was a bit of a dilettante. He didn't take care to secure its infrastructure, and it got, you know, hacked in a massive way. Someone just stole the Bitcoin. Um, you know, so obviously the lesson there is, you know, if you're running a crypto company, you, you're in charge of other people's money. So be very damn careful. Um, and some of the world's best hackers are using it. And you're not just looking for, you know, private hackers trying to line their money, their, their pockets. Um, North Korea, uh, you know, it's obviously a terrible government in place. They've told their army, hey, you know, if you want to be paid, go pay for yourself by hacking other countries. So North Korea's got very good crypto hackers. So does Russia. You know, you know, so, so there's a lot of a lot of criminal syndicates. It's a full-time job to try to rob people's Bitcoin. Um, you see, you know, ransomware is a lot of that's being, you know, enabled by the ease of cryptocurrency. I should add, though, that the tides turned a bit and that there's now governments are much, much better at finding this and you know, defending it. We saw a couple of weeks ago, this, this that couple in New York, there's another big hat called uh, Bitfinex where they stole like $4 billion four years ago. 
And, um, you know, they made, they screwed up their own security and they got, and basically the U S government hacked them back. They found their private keys and robbed them. <laughs> so the, it's, we're in this situation, this has become increasingly common where the U S has gotten very good at the law enforcement's getting good at holding their own. And in some cases, hacking back and stealing, you know, the plunder back from the hackers. So it's, it's, it's a wild world out there. I like it. I like that. That sounds like a good movie. And we're seeing lots of that more on TV all the time. Ten years ago, men accounted for 95 percent of the ownership of Bitcoin. And I looked up yesterday uh, that that percentage has not changed in 10 years. Why is that? Um, I don't know. That's some kind of above my pay grade. I want to be careful with what I say on sort of, you know, the realities of gender. I do know that the tech industry is recovered for a long year is very male dominated and bro-y um, and uh, crypto is even more so. And I think there's sort of two factors. I mean, the more controversial one is, um, you know, I think women are, um, you know, less inclined to go into, uh, you know, cryptography and mathematics, which is a lot of you know what's what attracts uh, crypto people or crypto entrepreneurs that. But part of it's cultural too. They make it sort of, you know, the people who started it are often, you know, do not design their products to be very attractive to women. Um, a lot of the culture is, you know, there's some misogyny in the culture. So I think for that reason, women are less inclined to, you know, get into it because it's an off-putting milieu. However, that's changing rapidly. Like platforms like Robinhood, the stock trading app, you know, I think they're, you know, they're percentage of women users is like 30% because, you know, part of it's how you design your products to make it welcoming to, uh, you know, men and women don't necessarily respond to the same cues or interact with technology the same way, you know, although obviously they do in a lot of ways, but there's, um, you know, so I think, you know, there, and there's more crypto entrepreneurs out there who are women. And I think that's going to change gradually, you know, once the, the technology is, uh, you know, they, they design it in a way that's more sort of attractive and intuitive to a broader amount of people. And then also the culture of crypto changes to be more uh, more welcoming to women and less misogynistic. Coinbase stock is, and I'm a, I'm a shareholder of Coinbase, uh, stock has dropped almost in half from its high. Is this a sign that this is a fad or it's just a sign of the times as everything is in upheaval due to the Russian invasion? Um, I mean, you know, the Coinbase is a stock like anything else in the market tanks. Um, it's going to go down too. you know, whether it's because of a Russian invasion or the pandemic or something else. In the case of its IPO, I think it's that was partly a function of is happening increasingly in Silicon Valley is insiders have so many shares and the company goes public and then they just dump them on the market. I mean, we've seen that with Robinhood. We've seen that with Uber, you know, any kind of buzzy startup from the past five years um, is, you know, the the average shareholder goes out to buy it is you know may, might not realize insiders have so many and they just keep dumping them on the market and that um you know deflates the price but you know i think it depends how you look at business so if you look at the fundamental of coinbase as a business i mean like uber how many years is it later and they're still losing money coinbase is making a ton of money they're very profitable and also a lot of wall street analysts haven't quite figured out what to make of coinbase the thing is like oh bitcoin price of bitcoin's gone down well better you know dump Coinbase because Coinbase is Bitcoin exposed. But I think you have to really start looking at Coinbase as a company a bit closer uh, and realize, you know, when there's the price crashes, they make money because they make money off volatility and trading. And increasingly, they're getting into other lines of business like lending cryptocurrency or NFTs. Um, and I think they've just got such a big customer base. The, um, you know, I think you have to start detaching the, the, the prospects of Coinbase from the price of Bitcoin. You know, I mean, there's gonna be a correlation, but increasingly it's, it's becoming less correlated. And I think that's that's a good idea or a good thing. 
why do you often read with high-tech companies that the founders are so driven that they often crush the morale and many of the best people burn out and leave? Because you you kind of studied that in your book. Yeah. I mean, if you start a company, you know, it's it's your, you know, I talk to founders a lot and they usually describe it as your child and that's what they care most about in the world. Um, but I think most of us have a job and, you know, uh, hopefully you like your job and you find it engaging, but it's not your whole world. Um, you know, you people, you know, you've got your hobbies, you've got your friends, you have your family, but for a lot of crypto founders or startup founders, their, their startup is their life. Um, and so, you know, to, they, they will drive their early employees. And in the best case, those other employees share that mission because they're all trying to succeed, build a product and, you know, get bought and get rich. But, you know, if you're just sort of, you know, there because, you know, it's your job um, and you probably don't care as much as the founder does. It can be exhausting working with these people because, you know, you their sense of their perspective is probably, in your view, a little warped. Uh, and you don't want to spend, you know, 16 hours a day and all day Saturday and Sunday on this project. You probably want to, you know, go to the park with your family or something like that. But the culture of Silicon Valley startups is frankly kind of brutal. And it's not for everyone for that reason. Uh, question from the audience. How does Bitcoin make money? Is it the difference in price between the buy and sell amounts? Do you mean Coinbase? Uh, Bitcoin. Well, I mean, Bitcoin just kind of exists. No one really runs Bitcoin. It's a computer program and, you know, people mine it. And if you mine more Bitcoin, you make money off that. But in terms of like the price of Bitcoin, I think it's, you know, driven by, you know, it's it's hard to say, you know, it goes up and down in response to macroeconomic shocks, um, government action, things like that. But, um, you know, Bitcoin itself is a decentralized computer program that isn't owned by anyone anymore. I think some of the early insiders, if you're first with many crypto products, you amass a lot of you know coins and then dump them later for a higher price. You know, you acquire them low, sell high. But you know, Bitcoin itself is not run by anyone. You know, Bitcoin is a decentralized computer program. It's a form of money that is not controlled by a central bank or anyone. So uh, you know, in terms of it making money, it, it, it just is, it just exists. It'd be like asking, how does gold make money? Well, I mean, like there's a finite amount of gold, but it sounds like there's an infinite, um, potentially an infinite amount of Bitcoin. So like if somebody, uh, to, you know, uh, takes an entire state in the United States and says every piece of ground on there is going to be used to mine Bitcoin, couldn't they crash the market by flooding the market with Bitcoins? Uh, no, because the way the Bitcoin algorithms designed is it only creates a, a new block every 10 minutes or so. And with that block, the new the new Bitcoin comes. You know, if you find the block, you get a reward. In the early days, you got 500 Bitcoins for finding that block. You know, then it was 250 and then it was 125 and it gets cut in half every few years. Now it's six. Um, so that's, you know, that's what you get. So sure, you could, you know, devote the whole state of, you know, I don't know, Texas and use all the oil and all the solar energy to, you know, throw it all at Bitcoin. But what happen if you did that, the algorithm that runs Bitcoin would get harder. So you can throw more computer power at it, but it's still designed to only spit out a new block every 10 minutes. So, you know, in that sense, and there's only 21 million Bitcoin, most of them have been mined, you know, I'll have to check it's like 18 or 19 million of them. Uh, have in mind already. And, you know, by 2050, that's, you know, I think at that point, you know, they, they all will have been mined, uh, unlike a central bank, which will print more money all the time. You know, bit, the supply of Bitcoin is finite, it's defined. And uh, I think that's what makes it appealing to a lot of people. Uh, question from the audience, how does Coinbase actually make money? 
Coinbase makes money on trades in the same way a brokerage does. Like, you know, you might be uh, Fidelity or TD Ameritrade, you know, when, uh, you know, now it's like officially no commission, but obviously they make money on the spread. Um, and that's what Coinbase does too. They charge, will charge you a fee of like two bucks commission to buy your Bitcoin. And then, you know, they might also make money on the, on the, on the, on the spread too, between, you know, what they acquire it for and what they sell it for. And increasingly, so yeah, it's, it's no different than a, a stock brokerage in that way. However, they're finding new lines of revenue, like um, in terms of like storing people's Bitcoin. As more, you know, big businesses and hedge funds buy it, they need someone to secure it. So Coinbase, they will put it in their vault for you for a fee. And they have some other revenue lines coming up too. Another question from the audience. Many people thought crypto would be a safe haven like gold, but recent events are not confirming that. Your thoughts? I mean, is gold such a safe haven? You know, it, it's gold. The price of gold's volatile too, to macroeconomic events. Um, and I mean, I think there was, if you look at the history of Bitcoin, the price, it will go into a big frenzy and be a bubble and then pop and it'll crash and crash. And that's happened multiple times over the years. But what I'd observe is that every time there's a crash, it's less dramatic than before. In the early days, Bitcoin, it was like $30 and that crashed to $2. You know, the most recent case was, I think, in 2017, it went up to $20,000 and fell to $3,000. And then last year, it climbed up to $60,000 and it fell to like $35,000. So my point being is, you know, these sort of shocks are part of the cycle of Bitcoin. But every time it crashes, it crashes, you know, it used to crash 95%. Now it might crash 40%. And this amount of time it takes to claw back to where it was is quicker every time. So, you know, that's what I'd say. You know, yeah, like any other asset, the price is going to go down if there's an invasion or a plague like we've experienced in the last few years. Price, everything goes down. Um, so, you know, in terms of gold, though, it's a generational thing, too. A lot of younger people look at Bitcoin as digital gold, treat it the same way because um, it's more practical, easier to move. But, you know, it's, it just depends on your view of the world. Um, you know, if the world's going to hell, gold's probably a good investment. But, you know, a lot of people would say Bitcoin is, too. Uh, question from the audience. What happens when all the Bitcoin is mined? Is that possible? Yeah, there's sort of a finite date. I think it's like 2050. I can't, It's either 2050 or 2051 or I mean 2150. It'll either be like 30 years or 130 years. Um, but what's happens at that point? So what's going to happen on the way there is each block is going to spit out a smaller and smaller reward. Once again, Bitcoin in the early days, you got 500 for finding one of those blocks every 10 minutes. Now the reward is only six Bitcoin. However, the other thing too, if you're a miner, you get a transaction fee. If you want to have your transaction included with that batch of, you know, the new block, I keep talking about these blockchains, every time it's a block, that contains Bitcoins for whoever found it, but also contains a record of transactions. Uh, and you can, the miners too can make money by, if you want to jump the queue and ensure your Bitcoin transaction is in the next block, you can add a little money to it, kind of as a tip or a service fee. And the miner will grab that first because they'll get paid for processing it. So the answer is there's, there's, there's a fee structure in the blocks too. So probably when the block reward, the payoff for finding the block diminishes to, to zero or almost zero, there's still money to be made from these fees. Uh, the supply of cryptocurrency is infinite, but the supply of Bitcoin is finite. Uh, I think you've kind of explained that quest, that answer. Um, or do you want to add on to that? 
Well, I mean, there's other cryptocurrencies too. You know, I mean, there's, uh, you know, I think like Dogecoin is, is they're going to keep kicking out more, but you know, that's a risk to buy something like that. If the supply is infinite, you know, it's a certain point, there's going to be the, the, the bottom, the value will fall out. But, um, you know, likewise, we you know with Ethereum, there's sort of a, you know, it's, 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 there's lots of other cryptocurrencies, but, you know, do your homework before you put your money in them. Uh, question from the audience. How are the blocks created? What are the math problems and what is their uh, purpose? Um, <clears throat> how are the, the blocks created? Um, you know, once again, it's this network of like, you know, thousands of people around the world run the Bitcoin software on their computer. Um, you know, it's, it's once again, Bitcoin's a software program and there's sort of an algorithm in there that creates, it's basically like uh, the, the math problems are of the sort that it takes, um, you know, you can only solve them by, by brute force. They're, they're unpredictable. So you have to just crunch numbers. It's like what, you know, what times what equals what, or, you know, what's the factor I'm explaining it very crudely. My math is, is very limited, but if you read about it quickly, um, it's sort of, it's, it's a, a hard math problem that you can only solve by trial and error. And then I mean, if more people join the network and try to, you know, find the next block that pro the, the the algorithm will adjust itself and get harder uh and you know make the the, the trial and error take longer to guess um and then if people drop off using the network it'll get easier the idea is to encourage a block to appear every 10 minutes in reality you know someone might get lucky and find one in two minutes some it might take someone like an hour to find it but on average it'll come out to 10 minutes another question can the average miner still be successful or is it only the big computer networks I'd say only the big computer networks realistically. Um, there was kind of a nice story a few weeks ago about some guy on his home computer was, you know, he was part of the Ethereum network and he was trying to mine too, but, you know, put it this way, it's sort of like the big, you know, people, you, you, you know, sort of a lottery to guess, you know, imagine like, you know, you get like a, you know, one of those balls from a lottery machine and your chance of it being drawn. If you're mining your home laptop, you probably have one, but if you're mining industrially, you probably have a hundred thousand, you know, balls are eligible to be chosen for the next lottery. So if theoretically you can still win, but you know, chances are you're gonna sit there and you know expend your electricity and not get anything. But as you know, a hobby, if you want to try it, go for it. And there's other things to mine as well. And the other thing too, amateur home miners do is you can join a pool. Um, if you have like a cheap electricity source and you have a GPU card that you want to, you know, mine Ethereum with, you can go do that and you join a, a pool and that means you'll be guaranteed some income because if you're contributing your computing power to the network as part of this pool of like, you know, maybe, you know, 10,000 miners, you get your, you get your allotment when someone else in your pool finds one. Uh, if crypto and blockchain were a baseball game, what inning are we in? Um, it's funny. Everyone likes to say the bottom of the first. I'd say we're probably more like in the top of the third. Um, you know, it's because we're at the stage where crypto is established. It's not going away as a form of money, but the applications, the things you can do with it, with the Ethereum network, the other ones coming online, and you know, sort of rebuilding our, you know, what they, a lot of the blockchain companies or Web3 aspires to do is instead of relying on Google or Facebook or Amazon Web Services as a central point to provide all this, the idea is we distribute that computing power across the big networks. So decentralized and we can do a lot of the same functions uh and you know basically run our you know our, our applications and lives on these distributed blockchain networks rather than relying on you know google facebook amazon apple to carry out all our computer services for us uh a question from the audience by mining do you obtain cryptocurrency without paying for it yes 
Um, so if you mine it, you're contributing to this network and your reward for, you know, lending your computing power to this network and adding a block to the network is you get um, a reward. It's called the block reward. It depends what you know, you're mining. Is it Ethereum, a Bitcoin or something else? Uh, and that's what you get. You have to pay tax on it. It's, it's income, it's revenue. But you know, if you want to take a shot at it, yeah, it's especially if you were in the early days and you found, you know, you, you mined a block of Bitcoin and got, you know, 250 Bitcoin. Well, you'd be rich today. Interesting. Uh, what what role is crypto and blockchain playing or will play in the metaverse? Um, the metaverse is kind of one of those sort of buzzword terms, kind of like AI or cloud computing. Metaverse is the new hot thing. Um, but you know, in terms of and there's who who controls it? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg is trying to claim that Facebook's going to own the metaverse, but there's multiple metaverses where you go in. The difference though is now, I mean, this stuff's been around for a long time. You, know, you might remember like the Sims or Second Life and these digital worlds you go in. The difference now is everyone's kind of got a wallet you can take place to place and you've got money to go through there and interact and transact. So that's sort of the role of, you know, the, the difference with Web 3 from Web 2 is you now have kind of a wallet you can go anywhere you like with. That's not like a Visa thing where you buy credit or, you know, World of Warcraft gold or Reddit gold. You know, there's been these sort of synthetic money things. But with, with crypto, it's, you know, it's this immutable record of, you know, who owns what. And the interesting thing about the metaverse is you might be able to go buy like a cool pair of sunglasses or a suit of armor in one world and go into another. And with you know, the, the thing called the NFTs, that attributes you're the owner of it. There's sort of, a, you know, a irrefutable ownership record of who owns what. And the metaverse is still, it's largely a buzzword. It's very new. How is it going to work? We don't know. But, you know, it's a, a lot of big companies are throwing a lot. You know, Facebook bet the farm on it. So I think that shows that, you know, this is where the world is going. In terms of the user experience, it's probably going to take a couple of years. You know, people like to joke, you know, the metaverse, no one has legs. I'm going to wait till they have legs. And then, you know, do you want to sit there in this metaverse, in this digital world, or do you want to go outside, you know, with your loved ones and sit in a sunny park? You know, that's the reality too. So um, last thing I'll say on this is, with new technologies, there's that sort of axiom that people overestimate the short-term impact, but underestimate the long-term. And that's what happened with the internet. Remember the dot-com boom? boom yeah, problem. yeah. This dot-com bust and people, ah, that was a fraud. I told you so. Ha ha. You know, this was all stupid. And then gradually, you know, <laughs> the internet became part of our life. Yeah, I never had a doubt about that. And, and do wish I would have bought a bunch of Amazon stock at $6 a share back in the crash in 99. A question from the audience. If you mine a Bitcoin, who pays you? Is there somebody that actually runs this thing? No, Bitcoin's decentralized. It's a computer program. Um, no one's in charge of it. Anyone can join it. And that was sort of the genius of Satoshi, the anonymous person who started it, was to have this record of transactions in a form of money that no one was really in charge of. The network is. So, you know, given there's like thousands of computers on that network um, maintaining it, you know, I, so I'll, I'll pay you, Mark, that will be inscribed on the blockchain and we'll be able to see it and prove it. Um, and, you know, that will be in that next block. So in terms of like, you know, the and the miners keep each other honest too. If I go and say, hey, hey, this, you know, I actually, you know, Mark paid me, you know, 200 Bitcoin, uh, the network will refuse it if it's not a valid transaction. So, you know, it's the sort of thing that's not best summarized in a podcast, but if you, if, you know, if you go and read a little bit about how the Bitcoin consensus mechanism works and the incentives built into it, it's worked staggeringly well. Bitcoin's now over 10 years old. It's never been hacked and it continues to work. Uh, if I don't, uh, I don't understand the concept that Brian Armstrong of Coinbase talks about economic freedom. 
what is the economic freedom associated with cryptocurrencies? What's he saying there? Uh, I mean, a lot of people in Bitcoin are um, libertarians and sort of, you know, have a very particular political and worldview. Um, but, you know, Brian Armstrong took up this attitude, like a lot of actually some very influential crypto people come out of South America, where they've seen governments like Venezuela and Argentina utterly ruin the currency. Um, so, you know, what they all say, the crypto people is like, you can be your own bank. You, you know, you can't. And also just with like sanctions and government seizing the money and stuff like that, if you want to kind of have your autonomous money that no one can get. I mean, I think a lot of the idealism is sort of silly. You still need the government. You still need banks. But, you know, and I think, you know, pure like crypto, you know, society might be anarchy. So I don't know if I'd want that either. Um, and, you know, like a lot of people who get rich, they start, you know, thinking not that they just go rich, but that they're changing the world and that they're great. and They're making the world a better place. You know, decide for yourself. You know, I make the case in the book both ways. I mean, crypto is a world changing technology. But, you know, is it does it bring freedom and democracy? That's debatable. Uh, you know, how concerned do we have to be with the fluctuations in the value of cryptocurrency? Because of those fluctuations won't be hard to be a mainstream currency um yes you know but don't put all your money into one thing i mean i'd rather be owning bitcoin right now than the russian ruble um yeah. you know, and other currencies <laughs> like that so you know it's 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 a volatile asset but it's becoming less volatile over time to be clear i'm not telling you listeners to buy bitcoin you know and what I say to people is look at it in an investment portfolio. You know, you have some stocks and some bonds and real estate and some of this and some of that and some gold. You know, allocating a bit of your money to crypto is probably a good idea. All the big university endowments are doing it. You know, Harvard and Princeton own Bitcoin. Um, you know, I think governments are looking at, you know, at owning some too, but as one of many assets. And yes, it's volatile. You know, go buy some today. It could go down tomorrow. But like other assets, you should probably want to be prepared to hold it for the long term. Okay. Uh, we have a question here. I was recently in Florida and I saw crypto ATMs in every gas station. Are you comfortable with them? Or, and why are there none in PA? Well, you don't live in Pennsylvania, but maybe you can still know why we don't have them here in, in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, Bitcoin machines pop up here and there. At least live in Brooklyn. There was one there. Um, you know, part of it's kind of like a marketing gimmick, but also it's just kind of a way to get you know, to get Bitcoin, you know, from a machine, if that's what you want to do. Um, I mean, I'm, the reality is, I think they're often used by, well, they're used by drug dealers frequently. Um, but also in the U.S., there's like, you know, what people call financial banking deserts, just like there's no good grocery stores in certain, you know, impoverished urban areas. There's also not financial services so in places like the Bronx and stuff where the traditional financial industry has been reluctant to go in or when they do go in, it's in the form of payday lenders. Um, I think a lot of these communities find crypto a, a, a better alternative. Same thing for remittances, too. I know Coinbase is pushing big into if you want to send money to Mexico, you can do it through their stable coins or through their Bitcoin. And they've actually set up cashiers like uh, in shopping malls. There's now hundreds of outlets in Bitcoin in Mexico where you can take a code and go redeem the crypto you receive. Um, and the transaction fee for moving crypto around is way cheaper than Western Union, which can be like 6%. Yeah, 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 of course. That sounds great. Uh, my last question for you, I don't quite understand the value of non-fungible tokens, which are being used for selling video clips, pictures, memberships to restaurants. I saw Gary V is doing that with a restaurant he's opening and other things and the connection to crypto and blockchain. I even asked a group of, 20, uh, of late 20 and early 30-something MBAs from Lehigh University, a great school with smart kids, and they didn't see the value either. 
please explain and, and where is this leading? Um, yeah, NFTs are a huge bubble right now. A lot of it is just get rich quick and sort of silly. And the joke is, oh, you can just right click it. Why would I have that? But I think there's something deeper to it. There are some sort of like premium NFT collections, um, pieces of art, something called the Board 8 Club, where you have the exclusive status of owning one. And, you know, there will be the blockchain shows you are the owner. You can, you know, copy mine, but, you know, it's not the same. I'm the one who owns it and I can verify I'm the only one who owns it. And I think what we're going to see is these things will sort of take the form of like, you know, private, you know, if you belong to a club, you have like a card that shows you can get in. And increasingly in the digital world, NFTs are going to be part of this. I think sports clubs are leaning into them a lot for experiences or they'll do promotions where you get the NFT shows you were at that game. You know, if you care a lot about your team and you went to that famous game, you'll have a record of that and they'll sell it and package it with a real world thing. You know, maybe you'll get like, you know, a Jersey and an NFT, like Tom Brady's got an NFT platform to start selling, defining these scarce moments and showing you are the only one, you know, it's the same reason like collecting, you know, collecting anything comics or whatever, part of it might be you like it, but part of it's because you're the only one who has it and that thing's valuable. Jeff, you're a smart guy to be able to even write this book and explain this stuff. It's a great book, um, definitely worth a, a read here. And I'm hoping that you're going to come out with other books in the future that we can have you back. And I, I thank you for taking time from this conference uh, to speak to us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. And thanks to you. That was a great interview. And to your, to your listeners, those were some really, really smart, interesting questions. So thank you, everyone. Everyone have a great rest of your week, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.